Traffic is heavy at the intersection of Wilson Heights Boulevard and Shepherd Avenue on this crisp but sunny fall day. It seems more people pass through this northwest Toronto neighborhood than stop. There is little to entice much foot traffic to the four corners. Two gas stations dot the north and southwest. On the southeast corner, a low-rise condo building with retail on the ground floor. It is in the parking lot I run into Maureen McElvini. We usually don't have any really bad things that happen in this area. She's the building supervisor checking on the tenants. Like I'm in condo property management and I have other properties in other areas and I'm not surprised when some things happen there, but when something happens here, I'm very surprised. On the ground level, there is a law office and a dental office. And in between the two, in 2008, there was a florist shop. So, does, do you remember this place? Yeah, nothing's really changed, believe it or not, since 2008. Other than the obvious, which is a flower shop, is no longer here. I'm Austin Delaney from CTV News Toronto. And today, I'm with CP24's crime analyst, Steve Ryan who back in 08 was a homicide investigator with Toronto Police. Back then, February 28, 2008, when this homicide happened, it was a bitterly cold uh, February night. I remember it like it was yesterday. We're here, it was just after 9.15 at night when uh, the, the police received the original call. Call came in as a, a, a death, basically, at the flower shop, and it was called in by the deceased husband who attended the flower shop because she didn't come home. So he went to her work to find her. Her name is Felicia Hosani. She was 51 years old. This tragic tale began to unfold at 9.30 last night. When Hosseini didn't answer calls for hours, her husband Rafiq went to the store and he could not imagine what he was about to discover. I see everything ramsack and the first thing I pushed the bathroom door a little bit and I see my wife was all on this duct tape and whatnot. I get so frightened, my legs are shaking, I didn't know what to do. Flowers by Felicia, the tiny shop only locals seem to know about, have been the target of a robbery gone bad. The mother of three was pronounced dead at the scene. He found her inside of here, uh, duct tape, basically her entire head was duct taped, her hands were duct taped behind her back. Her knees and feet were duct taped together as well, and she was left for dead. Felicia Osani had fought a courageous battle with the two robbers, but fighting back only further annoyed her assailants, who wanted money. At one point, Felicia got free, and she fought with this guy, and she pushed him, and he fell after he was hit in the chest. So the place was ransacked when we walked in. Clearly. These two uh, uh, characters were going through her small flower shop looking for any sort of uh, cash or anything valuable. Now, she would not give, she being Felicia, Felicia Husani, the, the deceased, would not give up her PIN number. And the, the more she resisted, the angrier the uh, two got, the two suspects got. In particular, the lead guy, the 34-year-old who was in charge of this two, duo, he was getting more and more upset because she would not give her uh, banking information so they duct taped her face even more and they duct taped her hands and they just left her there to die basically because they were pissed off that uh, she wasn't giving up uh, what they wanted. 
Ryan says Hosani died a horrible death that would stay in his mind forever. I was sitting with my hands in my face because I'd seen gunshot, I've seen stab wound, I've seen poisons, I've seen people jump in front of trains. These are all ways you expect people to be killed. But when you see a person duct tape, her, their entire head is duct taped and they can't breathe, suddenly I was feeling that anxiety that I thought she would have felt as she was gasping for her last breath. So to see that was a completely, that was foreign to me. That was a way that you, you, somebody died that I had no idea I would, was ever going to see. And it was very powerful. That cold winter night, staying inside the flower shop with Felicia's lifeless body, her face duct taped, was all too much for the seasoned cop. He walked out of the shop and around the corner to the back parking lot, where he was greeted by an icy cold February night breeze. Ryan needed to catch his breath, to be alone for a minute, away from the other investigators, away from the sight of Hassani, dead on the washroom floor, in the dress she wore to work that day, her face covered by duct tape, tightly wound around her head. Nearly made you sick, didn't it? I actually, it made me sick. I actually um, threw up out here. Um, not a lot, but enough that it turned my stomach. The, the fact that somebody had left this woman to die in such a, I mean, a, a bullet to the head, a, a knife to the throat, it's, it's instant. But you see somebody who's duct taped and they can't breathe, you just go through all of the, the, the steps of dying in their footsteps. How did she feel gasping for her last breath? Can't move her hands, can't move her feet, and she just died right there in her shop. It's strange because you've told me a, a number of times when you've gone to crime scenes that it's taken your breath away here, you've been physically ill. We, we don't suspect that of, of homicide officers. We think you've seen the world, nothing affects you, but clearly each and every one of these affects you in, in a very different, very emotional way. It affects every homicide detective uh, in such a deep way that I, I don't even think I can explain to you. And, you know, I'm fortunate because I have a platform now to talk to you about how I felt during these investigations. What I'm describing, all homicide cops feel that way. Every time you see one of these uh, horrific scenes, it literally takes your breath away and it makes you physically sick. But the shtick is you're composed in your you know, thousand dollar suit and your fancy haircut and you stand there and you're in charge, but you're dying a thousand deaths inside because what you saw, what you see, you can't unsee and it's something that our eyes aren't really meant to process when it goes to our brains. And if Asani's murder affected the detective in one way, the senseless killing tore a deep wound through the community. Family, friends and customers have been stopping by the shop all day. Some have dropped off flowers for a woman they describe as generous and kind. She was the excellent woman for the flowers. All the time you come here, she always give the discount. I don't know what happened. My husband always bought flowers there. We always knew her when she opened the store. She was extremely nice lady. Hosani was well liked. She had operated the flower shop for 10 years. But without Felicia, there was no Felicia's flowers, and the shop closed after her murder. On this day, I knock on the door of the new tenants to see if they'd let Steve inside to show us what was once a horrible crime scene. My name's Austin Delaney. I'm with CTV Television. 
We're doing a story today on the flower shop that used to be here. Okay, have a nice day. Thank you very much. Not interested in talking about the murder. But next door, at the dental office, they do want to speak to Steve Ryan about the neighbor they also called a friend. That was Felicia's biggest fear. And that happened to her. It's so ironic, isn't it, when something you fear like that actually yeah. comes to fruition? Yeah. So much hope, you know, just, you go to your work, you're happy, you know, you're doing something in your life. And she was enjoying her, what she was doing. Takes, I've said yeah. this many times, it takes a special person to duct tape somebody's head and then walk away and leave them alone. Oh my God. Right? Special person to do that, then. Yeah. Yeah. The office manager and the dentist in her scrubs moved to tears. It is a, uh, it's a horrific way to die, number one, and it's a, you know you're dying because you can't breathe. It, it's not instant though. That's what stayed with me this whole time. You die with your face duct taped up. It is not an instant death, much like a bullet to the back of the head would be. You know you are dying and it does take some time for it to occur. So she suffered? She suffered, yeah. It breaks my heart every time I think about that. She suffered, for sure. A horrifying death that at the time left Osani's family in shock and disbelief. Overcome with grief, her sister, Doris Salido, cannot understand why anyone would do this. She's just such a sweet person. It would, it would harm her. That job of who would harm her fell into the hands of Detective Sergeant Steve Ryan, who that night spoke to reporters outside the shop. It'd be helpful if anybody noticed anyone at all entering that, uh, that flower shop at any time today. It turns out someone did see two men of interest inside the shop, but not that day. Felicia's husband saw them casing the place the day before Valentine's Day, a little more than a week before the murder, ahead of one of the shop's busiest days of the year. He was there on the 13th. What did he do that day? He just looked around and like that, okay? He was just looking around and I, again, I, I remember clearly I, I, I was in the cooler and he didn't see me. My sister-in-law, my niece and my wife was there and he and his buddy walked in. Did he seem suspicious at the huh? time? Huh? Did he seem suspicious no, at the time? No, I didn't see no suspicion at him really. But Rafiq Hosani, or Jimmy to his friends, would not put the two together for a few months. Meanwhile, early in the homicide probe, the detective had his investigative sights on Rafiq himself. So you've got a woman who is murdered and she duct taped at work. She's found by her husband. Anytime that you have a situation where, particularly when a woman is murdered, you have to look right away at the intimate partner, past or present, you have to. That person has to be cleared almost right away before you can move on because statistically, if a woman dies, is murdered, it's usually at the hands of a past or present uh, intimate partner. The night of her murder, Ryan called Hosani into the local police division for a chat. The victim's husband was a prime suspect. He came into 32 and I interviewed him for probably three hours and it was more of an interrogation where I accused him of killing his wife. I accused him over and over and over again of doing that. Now I had no evidence that he did that, 
but as part of my job was to get a reaction from him and to see how he would react if I put it to him for a period of time that he in fact was one, not only did he find her body here, but he was one that killed her before he called the police. You had him in the interrogation room, but you also had some kind of a hunch. Things weren't adding up with his alibi. His alibi was perfect. When I talked to him about where were you at eight o'clock? Oh, I have a gas receipt. Here's where I got my gas. Where were you at 8.30? Oh, here's where I went to bingo. Here's my receipt for my bingo cards. So he had all of his receipts. And when you're sitting in my chair, you, you have a tendency to kind of suspect, well, that's convenient. Every time I ask you a question, you've got all the answers. And you, in fact, you've got proof as to where you were. How convenient. But in fact, that's how this man lived his life. So he spent a, a, an enormous amount of time with me being accused of killing his wife. And uh, he passed that test, to, to, for lack of better terms. So when that interview was over, I was satisfied. Now, we still needed physical evidence to exclude him, but I was satisfied that he, in fact, was not the one that put the duct tape on his wife's face. When you interview somebody who you suspect may have killed another person, you have to ask them if they did it. Oftentimes, a killer will say, I didn't say I killed that person because you never asked me. But if you ask, you're looking for that natural response. And that natural response is, are you kidding me? You're looking for that man to come over the table wanting to choke me out because I'm accusing him of killing his wife. The wrong answer is, why would I do that? That's not in my character. That would give an interrogator another door to kind of open and go down another avenue. But when somebody reacts so naturally, that's usually a clue that they may not have been involved like you may suspect them to have been. And what was he doing? How, what was he, how was he reacting? Well, he was getting ticked. He was ticked with me. He uh, was upset. Um, to his credit, he stayed there and he took this from me. Uh, he took the accusations and he took the questioning back and forth, going to the middle and going to the end, just like watching a movie, bringing it back and forth. And he had all the answers. And he was running out of patience with me, but not once did uh, he get up and say, I'm out of here, I want to leave. He said, do what you got to do because the killer is out there and I'm here to take your questions. And that's what he did. And when it was over, he, he said to you, didn't he, that, uh, hey, that was, that was kind of hard. Yeah, so when it was over and we went through court, uh, I got to know, I, I, Jimmy I called him, was his uh, first name, that's how I knew him. And he said to me, I was close to almost confessing in a, in a half-hearted, joking way, but it's kind of real. And as an interrogator, you really need to be careful of that. You need to be aware of the fact that your interview skill or your, the manner in which you do an interview, you can elicit a false confession. The interrogation rooms at the police divisions look just like they do in the movies. Windowless, small rooms, a table, chairs, and recording devices. So let's go, let's go into that room because um, the public doesn't get a chance to go into that room. There's you. You've got all the authority in the world because you're the detective sergeant here. And his wife is just murdered. And how, how do you do it? Is it, is it are, you, are you screaming? Are you just looking at his face? Are you, are you whispering to him? How do you explain that to me? Great question. You can't scream because the courts have said once you scream, once you strip the dignity of a person you're interviewing, your interview is basically gone. And any confession you were to get after that most likely would not be admissible. So here's what I do. With every interview I, I did in Homicide, the videotape would be going. I would already be sitting in the room. So the first time that I met any of my interview subjects would be when they come into the room tape is going. I've got um, 
potato chips and sandwiches and candy bars all set up in the room with pop and water. You want to make it as comfortable as possible for that person. They come in, you introduce yourself, they sit down, and now you're off to the races. Now the game's on. And it starts right away. It's aggressive questioning, but it's respectful, it's dignified, and you have to do it in a manner where if he were to confess, the courts are going to see that my line of questioning was acceptable, and you don't want to tick him off because I can't keep him there. He doesn't have not to talk. He does not have to talk to me. So I need to keep him in that chair as well. So it's a fine line you've got to walk because once he gets up and says, I'm out of here, I can't keep him. He's out. He's free to go. So you just calmly accused him of doing it. What did you say? Calmly accused him of, of killing his wife. I told him that there was no doubt in my mind that he did that. No doubt. Then I tried to give him an out by saying that we all lose our temper, stuff happens, I understand. You don't understand, but you say you understand. And you move closer and you tell them again, it's okay, it's over, I understand what you did, let's talk about it. And then you hear that, I didn't do this. And it's a huge, huge scream. So you move back, of course, and you start again because let's see if he does it again. And you do it a third time and a fourth time. And at some point it's gotta end. At some point you go, okay, you passed the test, man. You answered all the questions. Your reactions were right. You could have fooled me, but we would have learned that when we got physical evidence. But the physical evidence that we got corroborated what he was telling me, but what, we're, or what we were able to do after interviewing him was put him aside and now move on and go find the people that did this. When you're, when you're saying to him, um, accusing him, look, you did it. At that point in the investigation, because it's two hours after the body's been found, right? Do you actually believe that? Or is this just a way to exclude him as a suspect. So you always have an open mind going in. Initially, I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I thought initially uh, he found her. That was convenient. Uh, he had all the receipts. That was convenient. So you're working towards trying to catch him in a lie, but there was none. No matter how difficult the questions I put to him, again, you, you, if you want to find out if somebody's telling the truth, if they watch the movie, I can take you to the middle of the movie end of the movie, three quarters of the way through, back to the beginning, back to the end, and just keep going back and forth. If you saw the movie, it's no problem. Baseball game, what happened in the third inning? What happened in the ninth inning? Who hit in the eighth inning? If you saw it, no problem. If you're lying, good luck. So that's what I did with him. Brought him back to bingo, before bingo, after bingo, back to bingo, gas in the car. When he saw Felicia last, he had all the answers. He had and they all, all, the answers. they all stayed the same? They all stayed the same. More than a decade has passed since the tragic murder of Felicia Sonny, but today Steve Ryan meets up with Felicia's son Greg in the parking lot of the building that was the scene of his mother's homicide. Hey Greg. Hey, how are you Steve? Long oh, time, man. Oh, no kidding. What do we do? Do we shake hands? Do we fist pump? Fist, like I think we do. I, think. I want to ask you that the obvious, how does it feel to be back here? Uh, I haven't been back here in a while, to be honest with you. Uh, it's kind of eerie feeling, you know. It's Stuff like this, you try to bury it, you know, because you don't want to be thinking about it every day because you'll spiral out of control. Right. right. No such thing as closure though, right? No I don't think thing. so. Uh, no, no. Every holiday, every, you know, birthday, every, there's time to time you think of them and it's unfortunate what happened. Greg tells Steve that his father passed away after a stroke January 1st, 2019 and both recall that interrogation the night of the murder. Did he ever tell you the story how I 
interviewed him and actually accused him. I had to, right? Yeah. I, did he, did I, you're laughing now because he yeah. laughs at it. He laughed uh, at it too at the at the time. Did he ever tell you that story? Yes. When we went to go pick him up uh, from the station, he's like, actually, he's I don't want to say what he said. We're right, accusing right, right. me of doing the crime and this and that, and you know we have to explain to him while well, you were first on scene. They're going to question you that way, right? So, yes, he did. He did tell me. And you know, I apologize to him uh, many times over the years yeah. for that, and I was hoping to do that again. And I was very sad to find out that your dad, your dad had yeah. passed, and with, with a broken heart, I'm sure, because he loved your mom. Yes. I never him telling me that. Well, 100%. Uh, I feel a part of him really died when she died. But back in February of 2008, the then homicide detective had a murder to solve. 51-year-old Felicia Hosseini suffocated last Thursday after she was bound and gagged while her North York flower shop was robbed. There was no surveillance video. All police knew was that cash was missing and someone had tried to use Hosseini's debit card without any luck because she'd given the robbers a false pin number. This was a stranger on stranger murder, the hardest to solve but the cops had some DNA. So Ryan enlisted the help of some of his colleagues down the hall at police headquarters, the holdup squad. Holdup was on to uh, these two suspects, not for a homicide, but for a, a slew of holdups for, for a long time. They did some really good police work. Holdup had arrested two guys for a string of robberies with the same MO. Even another florist north of the city was bound and gagged with duct tape. She survived. 33-year-old Andre Clark and 22-year-old Nevin Joseph were now sitting in jail facing robbery charges. So when they got DNA from one of their uh, robbery cases, they were able then to match it to the duct tape that we had in the homicide. So it really was a joint effort, but the holdup was on to uh, these two suspects, not for a homicide, but for a, a slew of holdups for, for a long time. They did some really good police work. And is that through people calling crime stoppers, or? That would be through sources that Holdup would have developed themselves. So they, like I said, they are, they are uh, the drug squad of the banks, basically, where they are out hitting the streets every day trying to get information on the latest holdups, who's planning to do a holdup, who may be doing a holdup. So they had their own intelligence, very good intelligence, actually. Two guys in jail on serious charges after a robbery spree across the city including two florists bound and gagged with duct tape. It was time to tie the two to the Hassani murder. And as always, killers leave a calling card. So, Steve, you, you had DNA on these guys. How'd you get that? Holup was investigating these two for uh, very many similar holdups. They're all similar in nature with regards to how they were committed. So they were on these two, and they had in one of the cases, one of the holdups, they, the holdup squad had seized uh, duct tape that was used to put around um, one of the victims in one of the other robberies that these two suspects committed. And there was DNA left on that. And the DNA that was left on that duct tape, so it was done with teeth. They ripped the, ripped the duct tape with their teeth, left saliva on there, which is DNA. That matched the DNA on the duct tape in Felicia's flower shop. So we knew that the donor of that DNA was the same person. Exactly who that was, we did not know, but we knew it was the same person. So we suspected it was Clark and uh, Joseph. 
The holdup squad were then able to get a, a DNA warrant. So you go to a judge, you explain what I just explained to you, saying we got DNA on two pieces of evidence, two pieces of duct tape. We believe are the same guy. They got a warrant, did the DNA warrant on uh, uh, Clark, and his DNA matched that on the duct tape. And that's how, that's how it was solved. And it's, uh-huh, we got you now. That's it. Best piece of evidence is, uh, is DNA. And once you've got that, there's, there's no getting out from underneath that. And what does that feel like when you get the phone call going, it's a match to, to your murder and the other robbery? It's, it, it's euphoric in, in the sense that the old proverbial needle in a haystack, we had no idea what we were looking for. And thanks to the, the, the hard work, the good work by the holdup squad. Uh, and it, this goes to show you too, when you investigate a murder and you have success, there's a lot of things on the outside that help with that success. And one of them, a big part was the uh, detectives from the holdup squad who gathered all this evidence as well. So we together were very, very uh, happy in the fact that we were able to solve this because they would have went out and did it again and somebody else may have died as a result of their actions. So we were happy that we were able to identify them, arrest them for the murder and put an end to that from happening again. They've got DNA, but now the detective wants one of the two suspects to turn on the other. So they join the holdup cops and go to the Toronto East Detention Center. My partner and I went in, piggybacked on their investigation and interviewed the younger of the two. And we did that strategically because the 32 or 34 year old was a hardened type of guy and there was no way in hell he was gonna to talk to us. I mean, he'd go down in flames before he's gonna to talk to the police. And you just know that. Those uh, techniques I was telling you about, there are some people that's just not gonna work on and he's one of them. The kid on the other hand, I thought he was, primed to be uh, interrogated and he was primed to give us a confession. And I felt that because when I talked to him initially, uh, he didn't talk to us. He sat with me for two hours, two, three hours, and cried. So I knew that we had made a, a, an impact with him. And a couple days later, while he was in the East Detention Center, he phoned me at my office in homicide and he said, I want to tell you everything. So my partner and I grabbed our video camera, raced out to the East Detention Center, and he gave us a complete confession. The East, as it's known, is a long, low-rise brown brick building in Toronto's East End. The windows all have bars visible from the street. It is a maximum security jail, often holding people awaiting trial, and it can be tough inside. The, the doors clang behind you. Like, what's, what, so, Walk us through going into the East, what happens? First off, let me say that anytime, as an investigator, you go into one of our detention centers or you make a trip to Kingston, man, it's intimidating because they, they the criminals that are in there, in there, they can smell you a mile away. And Good to hear a cop? Oh yeah, oh yeah. They, doors are clanging, they're screaming. It really is very Hollywood-like and it's, it's terrifying to be quite honest with you. Even though they're locked up. Even though they're locked up. Even though they're locked up. They know you're there, man. They know. And it just goes from one person to the other. So we had to be very careful with this young man because he's going to give us a confession now. Now he is a rat in jail. So we had to take care of him, take care of his safety. So we tried to do it as quietly and secretly as we could in a jail setting. So we taped paper up around all the windows, just little pieces of regular everyday paper. We taped the windows all so we had some privacy. Um, we got to the jail as quickly as we could because we didn't want him to change his mind. So we had just a little video camera. We set it up on a tripod. And, and you're, you're in an interrogation room? We you're were not in, in a an, cell with him, Mark? We're not in a cell. We're on the main floor in a room. I would 
suggest or suspect that most lawyers meet with their clients in because it was a small not not great room but it was it was a room where we had some privacy and we did our uh, we did our interview there is a table that doesn't move and a couple of chairs also braced to the floor the detectives listen to the clanging doors the ever-present jailhouse hum and wait for the guards to bring Joseph in The door opens. He is dressed in an orange prisoner jumpsuit. Blue sneakers without laces. He is shackled. Joseph wanted to get this off his chest. Tell the investigators what role he played in the robberies. But more importantly, what role Clark played in the murder. The cops were more than willing to listen to his story. I had the uh, shackles removed from him because you never want to take a statement when somebody's in handcuffs, ever. It's just not good optics. And Why? Because... The, the optics of that is they are not free. They are, they are giving you what you want to hear because they're in handcuffs and it's uncomfortable for them. So they'll just say whatever it is you want them to say. So again, you need to make everything comfortable for him, for this guy, as comfortable as we could make him in a jailhouse setting. And you want to be his friend too, or and seemingly his friend. Want to be his friend. We want to be, I want to be his uh, uh, sympathetic ear. I want to be that shoulder for him to lean on, that shoulder for him to cry on. And I was, and I was because we spent hours with him days prior working that relationship, knowing full well that he was the, the if there was any weak link in that duo, it was gonna be this 22 year old kid, and it was. It would be Joseph's second meeting with Ryan as the detective carefully played the sympathetic cop role in an effort to get him to confess befriending him when it appeared behind bars at least Joseph did not have a friend in the world telling this guy that here's my number anything you need call me I'm here for you I, I don't blame you for what you did I know somebody else may have uh, been more in control than you so you give them all the outs and then they sit on that they'll leave you and play that over in their head thinking hey I might have an out here I might have a, a shot to to actually help this investigation and maybe even help myself out as well and you mentioned the day before, he just cried and cried. He cried and cried and cried. So the story behind him, real quick, is that he was from uh, St. Lucia. Uh, he was here illegally in this country. No family, he knew nobody, no job. I think he didn't think he even had a, a, a decent place to live. And uh, Andre Clark was the hardened criminal, took him under his wing and took him with to every one of these holdups that he did. and. Uh, Nevin, the young kid, was his second in charge, and he would just do whatever Clark told him to do while they were committing these robberies. Clark had a lengthy criminal record going back a long time. It wasn't his first stint behind bars. Until now, Joseph's record was clean, but he was about to face the ultimate charge under the criminal code. So he's confessing to you, but you're still going to charge him with first degree. Why is that? That's right, because he you you can't just say to somebody you're not charged now tell me what it is you want to tell me because that statement is the credibility of that statement is gone when he gave us that statement knowing full well that he could face a first degree murder charge as well without any inducements or promises that anything that it was going to be better for him it it really gives teeth to his version as to what's happened because he 
is still facing a first-degree murder charge when he gave this story, as opposed to, we're going to charge you with jaywalking, kid. Tell us what you know. Doesn't look so good in court, and the courts will look really, really down upon a statement taken in that manner. So at that point, when he's in jail facing these other charges, the robbery charges, what's in it for him to say, I murdered somebody? Admit to it. Uh, great question. He was not a criminal. He wasn't a criminal. He, got, he went from zero to 100. I, I, I know I've said many times that you don't go from doing nothing to duct taping somebody's face and leading them to die. Well, he didn't duct tape her face. He was there to help this guy who was basically bullying him. Um, so he wanted to clear his conscience. That was, that was it. He just wanted to say, this is what's happened. I'm prepared to pay whatever price it is. Uh, this is what we did. So what happens now? Do you go see Clark, is it? We, so we arrest, uh, we charge Clark. Clark is in, they're both in custody for the robberies. We advise Clark that he's being arrested for first degree murder. He says nothing. I suspected he wouldn't, he would. And uh, we go through the process. And we have a trial 18 months later where Nevin Joseph is now the star witness testifying against Andre Clark. The victim in this case, 51-year-old Felicia Hosani, a mother of three. Two men now stand accused of murdering her in her Downsview flower shop on February 28th. They are 33-year-old Andre Clark and 22-year-old Nevin Joseph, both of Toronto, and both now facing first-degree murder charges. Felicia Hosani suffocated after being gagged with duct tape. Detective Sergeant Steve Ryan. Robbery. Um, money. They were looking for money. And, uh, you know, unfortunately the robbery turned into, into a homicide. My, my belief is that any time you duct tape somebody's entire uh, head and face from, from chin up, I mean, you'd have to be pretty silly not to think that that person's going to die. Felicia Osani died as a result of that forcible confinement, so it is first to be murder. We drive to the courthouse a few kilometers north of the flower shop, north of the murder scene. Both Clark and Joseph were originally charged with first-degree murder, but Joseph struck a plea deal with the Crown for his ongoing testimony against Clark. He would plead guilty to manslaughter and three robberies and receive 12 and a half years, less six and a half years of pre-custody. But it would not be an easy time on the witness stand. So he's now the Crown star witness. Clark sitting in the prisoner's box. He's on the witness stand and he's talking and he's telling everything. What's Clark doing? Yeah. When he's a rat now, right? He's a rat, man. He's a, as, as big a rat as they come in the eyes of uh, the criminals who live in that sort of lifestyle. And an accused person has the right to look at his accuser. So Clark had every right in the world to look right at Joseph as he's testifying against him. Couldn't hide Joseph. You can't put a screen up. You, he has to be in the same room with the person that he is accusing. So Clark was uh, trying to in intimidate him throughout the, his entire testimony. And we could see that with his facial expressions. And that went on for some time. Uh, Clark was uh, chastised by the court. I spoke with him, his lawyer spoke with him. Didn't care, he just went back and just kept doing it. And was Joseph intimidated? Oh yeah, yeah, he was very much so. And the judge, what did he say? knock it off, basically knock it off or they were going to send him out of the court and have him watch on, on video because he was intimidating a witness. That's a criminal offense as well. He really stopped. He did it again and again. And did he get thrown out of the court? No. 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 It's a big step. A judge is going to throw some, uh, an accused out of a court. That's a big step because, again, it's their trial. They got a right to be there. But Clark was over the top with his uh, aggression towards uh, Joseph as he was talking to us.
As intimidating as Clark was to his former partner in crime and now star crown witness against him, Clark was about to get some of his own. And it doesn't happen in the jail, but in the courtroom itself. So Steve, my years reporting on the streets and there's an arrest, I often speak to the victim's family. And I often hear this, Austin, just give me five minutes alone with the guy. That's all I want, five minutes. But generally, that never happens. But it did in this case, didn't it? It did in this case, and I saw it for the first time in my career, and a family member of Felicia Lusani's had their five minutes with uh, Andre Clark. We are here at the Thousand Finch for a hearing of some sort. I don't remember what the hearing was, but it was myself, the homicide, the holdup detective, excuse me, was in court, a court officer, the Hosani family, and the judge, of course, and Clark. We heard a scream, and one of the family members went over the, prisoner, the plexiglass into the prisoner's box. The scream was Clark calling for help. His really deep voice, I don't care about anybody, changed. It was a high-pitched cry for, help me, help me, I'm being assaulted. And both detective, uh, the whole detective and I look over, and the, the, this guy, who's a family member of the Hosani family, is in the box, and he is getting his five minutes of uh, time with Clark. Clark didn't fight back, just cowered in the corner. And it was weird because the courtroom cleared out, of course. The detectives are left with the court officer to clean up that mess. So we, the detective from Holdup and I, were going in this prisoner's box to defend the guy who just, we were accusing of duct taping a woman's face and killing her. But that was our job. So we had to get in there and separate them. But it always stood out for me as very ironic that the guy that committed this awful, awful homicide is now cowering in the corner of the prisoner's box crying for help like he's a, a child. The big tough guy being a bit of a baby. Big tough guy being a baby, crying for help, literally almost in tears saying, help me, help me, help me. And, you know, <laughs> you get there as quickly as you can. And like I said, the irony wasn't lost on me going into that prisoner's box to protect a guy who I really didn't want to protect. Was there a side of you that kind of went, I don't want to do this? 100%. There was a side of me that wanted to take extra steps to get to the box, but that's my, my job, right? Our job is not to seek just revenge, it's to just put people before the court. So we had to get there as quickly as we could. But yeah, it certainly wasn't lost on me. And the family member charged? Nobody was charged at the time. Clark made a quick utterance that he did not want charges to be laid, which was a good thing in, in my view. Uh, so we just moved on from there. There were no injuries. We got in that prisoner's box. I see we, the detective and I got in that box before there was any substantial damage done. But had we not got there as quick as we did, he may have lost a tooth or two, I can guarantee you. And may have had a broken nose and a few other things because this family member was doing what many have talked about doing over the years and he wanted to seek his revenge on this monster. Ever, ever seen it again? Ever, never saw it again, never heard about it again. That was the very first time I've ever experienced it. Charged with first degree murder, a jury convicted Clark of the lesser crime of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 18 years in jail, less pre-sentence custody, amounting to about 10 years. Both are now out, Joseph deported to his native St. Lucia. They're free and uh, my mom's not here. So what else is really to say, right? And, and, they, and they killed her in such a, just a horrific manner. I mean, good God. Yeah, they did, but uh, they deemed a manslaughter. I guess uh, the jury didn't feel that way. You, you disagreed with that, I remember it at the time. Uh, 100%. 100%. I mean, you had to know some degree what you were doing. Like, uh, you, when you tape up a woman's face and... Uh, 
and leave them lying there like a like I don't know like a, a, a piece of meat or something. Something obviously is going to happen. Back at the scene of the crime where the flower shop used to be, Ryan picks up with Osani's son, Greg, who became a father just a week after his mom's murder. His daughter's middle name is Felicia, in honor of his mom. I used to tell her that grandma or nonna got sick and passed on and she typed in her name on, the, on Google and it all came up and I had to give, have a conversation with her on exactly what happened at 11 years old, which uh, was probably the toughest conversation I have ever had with somebody in my life. Um, it was very emotional, I'm not going to lie, but uh, I, I don't know, uh, I hope she understood why I lied to her. Um, it's just not something that I wanted to discuss with her child. Right? So. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. you know, like we said, there's no handbook, right? No. no. There is one more stop on this journey, because if there is a ray of sunshine in this dreadful case of murder, it is here at the Centerpoint Mall, where Steve finds himself strolling one day, four years after the killing. I heard the detective, and I turned around, and it was Felicia Hosani's daughter, who was at the mall. She recognized me, and she approached me. It was a voice Ryan had never heard before, because for years after her mother's murder, she went silent and did not utter a single word. That day though, loud and clear, she was hugging the detective and in a strong voice, Ryan says, thanking him for solving her mother's murder. Her son, Greg, tells me having his child born so close after his mother's murder was a great distraction and helped him through the grieving process. But the pain of losing your mother in such a horrific, callous way never goes away. I'm Austin Delaney. Thank you for listening.